This is IAQ Radio, Indoor Air Quality Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry, with your hosts, Radio Joe Hughes and the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. And now, Radio Joe Hughes. Good day and welcome to IAQ Radio Plus. This is episode uh, 617 and we welcome Isan Musavi of the Clemson University, let's get this right, Department of Construction Science and Management. We're going to talk a little bit about indoor air quality and what we can learn from hospitals today. Before we get started, we want to thank our sponsors. Please let our sponsors know you appreciate their support of IAQ Radio Plus. Our marquee sponsor is Instascope at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are the American Industrial Hygiene Association at AIHA.org, the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists at ACGIH.org, the Cleaning Industry Research Institute at CIRIScience.org, the Indoor Air Quality Association at IAQA.org, the Restoration Industry Association at RestorationIndustry.org, the Institute for Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification at IICRC.org, and Healthy Buildings America 2021 at HB2021-America.org. Industry sponsors are AEML Laboratories at AEMLINC.com, Particles Plus at ParticlesPlus.com, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions at GrayWolfSensing.com, TSI Inc. at TSI.com, and Healthy Indoors Magazine at HealthyIndoors.com. And now you can win a cool prize. It's time for the IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Be the first to correctly answer. Simply email your answer to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if listening live, just text your answer from your computer. And now, here's the Z-Man. Hello, everyone. Congratulations go out to John Lapotere, Orlando, Florida, who was first to identify conduction, convection, and radiation as three ways that heat transfers from one object to another. The IQ radio trivia question for today, Friday, February 19, 2021, has been sponsored by TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigation business at TSI.com. Here is today's trivia question. In 1996, the CDC established a term broadening the focus of prevention, applying the principles to all patients regardless of diagnosis or presumed infection status, considering the risk of transmission of illness from both recognized and unrecognized sources. Name that term. Back to you, Joe. All right, thanks, Cliff. Dr. Hassan Musavi is an assistant professor in the Department of Construction Science and Management at Clemson University. He got his PhD from the University of Nebraska, did his undergrad work in Iran, and he has served in various capacities in the construction industry, including dam road and, of course, building construction projects. Currently, his research is to appraise the effect of environmental parameters of design, construction, operation, and maintenance of healthcare premises down at the University, the Clemson University. 
Welcome to the show, Dr. Musavi. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. Hey, it must have been a bit of a culture shock. So you went from Iran to Nebraska. Um, <laughs> how did that happen? <laughs> yes, sir. Um, what a journey. So, well, uh, I guess I don't mean to take a lot of time uh, talking about that, but um, um, it wasn't me uh, who came here first. My, my father actually came here and he graduated from Oklahoma State University back uh -huh. In 70s and then um then he got back to iran to marry my mother and then had me and then what like 30 40 years after um we decided to kind of follow the same path so i started applying and one thing led to another and i found myself in nebraska lincoln nebraska <laughs> in a um, beautiful yet cold spring uh well was it spring it probably was uh winter time or so what we call in academia spring semester, right? Yep. Um, that was the first cultural shock, right? It's just cold and, and snowy and all that kind of good stuff. Uh, but hey, I liked it. Um, um, I survived. I enjoyed my time. Got a job at Clemson. Uh, I've been blessed. How, how did you get involved in the hospital work? Did that happen when you got to Clemson or were you doing that prior? What a great question, Joe. So when I came to America, I came with a different agenda. So I was a project manager, a construction project manager for about what, like eight, nine years or so. So I wasn't a like a typical student who find, finishes a master's degree and right after starts a PhD. There was a gap of uh, about eight or nine years between the two degrees. I started working uh, in various capacities in the world of construction and um, questions built up, right? How do I do this right? How do I do that right? And at some point I was like, I need to find good answers for these questions. And that was my time um, to decide that I need to do a PhD. I need to learn more. I need to be a better man. Um, and I got I to gotta tell you guys that my wife has a, had, a, had a really outstanding role in that. She was always supportive, always supportive. And um, then I came to the States with, the, with that agenda in mind. How can I be a more efficient construction manager? Then all of a sudden, um, I got acquainted with another topic. Right. At the time, it was a little weird because there was a professor, my advisor, uh, Kevin Groskopf at, uh, at University of Nebraska, who was doing things on hospital IAQ and things like that. Mm. And in our first meeting, and I'm not going to lie to you guys, first meeting was like, what's going on? I was looking around. Am I in the right department? Is it because the terminology was all weird. I mean, there is a lot of, you know, medical terms, like your trivial question terms and things like that. And I'm like, well, and let, well, let's actually put it in some context. I'm not speaking English. I'm, <laughs> that's not my mother tongue. So I'm like, what is going on here? Um, so I got my head spinning uh, several times. And then um, I started reading, reading and reading. And I asked for two weeks of time from my advisor. I said, well, let me just read. So I read and read and read and came back with two pages of questions. 
And I'm like, man, this is right on. This is much more fun than, than I thought. This is probably more relevant, probably much more needed than my agenda. So I'm ready to switch trains. That's what I'm going to do. So, so I started actually reading more, doing experiments, tests in actual hospital system. And at the same time, I started to learn and get better on the mathematical fundamentals like uh, air movement studies, CFD computational models, statistical models, and things like that. Try to kind of you know, create a, a well-rounded type of research. And that was all the beginning. So we had a lot of experiments in hospital systems. Um, and I started learning more and more about how air actually moves in indoor environments, how contamination spreads, how can I model them? How can I learn more about them? And that was my PhD work, like all together. When I came to Clemson, um, Again, well, if you think about it, what I did was not a traditional research in construction science and management. Okay. But I stood by it. And I'm like, well, this is needed. This is relevant. And this is all pre-COVID. So you all know what I'm talking about. It was about the time that, you know, folks didn't, uh, should I say, take it seriously? Uh, probably something along those lines. But I still thought there's a lot to do about this. And um, just, you know, stood by it. Uh, that's my agenda at Clemson. I'm working with uh, organizations that are around the world, actually, that, that are within the same realm of research. I am with ASHRAE. Um, actually, with, um, I'm going to be a voting member with ASHRAE 96, which is Ventilation for Healthcare Facilities. Hmm. Um, and I'm with ASHI, and uh, I just continue um, working on this on, on this. You also have interest in energy in hospitals, and hospitals are big energy. I mean, they're pigs, all right. They just they they really use a lot of energy. Where do you see the biggest um, potential for energy savings in your work with hospitals? What a great question, Joe. Um, so, if you look at the data that's out there. It, um, you can find that energy consumption of a hospital, about two thirds of that energy goes towards mechanical HVAC systems. Um, and then you've got other things like lighting, like the well, hospitals, let's keep in mind, there's a lot of equipment and technology that's going on there that all needs, um, you know, energy and so forth. But again, a big chunk of all that is um, the mechanical system. And there was, a, again, um, the data shows that a hospital spends about five times the energy of an equivalent commercial setting, hmm. um, which is, again, huge. So if you ask me, I guess I, I got a dog in this game, but if you ask me, mechanical systems, HVAC systems, air distribution systems are our are, are best bet if you want to save energy in a hospital setting. Now, okay. if I may also add, and I'll be quick about this, it, 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 through time, the reason why we need a lot of air into our hospital settings have changed. 
back in the days, you had these huge MRI machines and things like that. They were a source of heat. So you needed to deal with that heat and you need a lot of, you know, energy. Right now, we actually found our way to be much more efficient about energy consumption on the equipment side, which means that we cut the heating uh, load from a hospital, but there's a lot of residue that's coming in. And now quality becomes an issue. Yet we're sitting on spending a lot of energy, sort of somewhat regardless of what's happening out in the technology that's that's being used in hospitals. And a lot of it's because of ventilation needs and, and then, you know, negatively pressurizing rooms, exhausting to the outside, 100% outdoor air in some of these areas. So there's obviously a lot of room for improvement. Um, when you look at doing renovation in hospitals, um, it's obviously tough, if not impossible, to shut down operations and and you did some research on the use of what's called a control cube and i forgot to get john to get that picture up but john maybe you could go to uh if you could pull up a control cube photo i'd like to talk a little bit about your your research you did on the use of control cube for inspection and maintenance activities um is this something that 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 they were already using in the hospital and you were just trying to verify whether it was working or not Yes. Um, so I uh, so I am working with a um, group here uh, called Prisma Health. They're uh, one of the largest healthcare systems in South Carolina, uh, and we have a very fruitful sort of relationship with uh, with them as far as doing research. They have been always gracious um, about letting us in our systems and facilities and having us um, use what they have. One of the things they actually were super excited to know more about was this control cube that you're showing. Um, obviously, the technology has um, advanced in a in a sense that now you have control cube that cubes that are stainless steel. They're larger, and they uh, the, the capacity, the height can change and be adjusted. The size can be adjusted depending on the scope of your repair. And, and they're also equipped with some fan and some HEPA filtration system, right? And the question was this, are these things really useful, right? And then we went in and started to test this. So we started to um, come up with scenarios and in, 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 in formats like simulations where you know what happens if um, you know a construction worker wants to remove a, a ceiling tile and do some inspection on that ceiling, check the wires, do X, Y, Z, whatever the case may be. And, um, and guess what? That's gonna release a lot of dust and potentially pathogens attached to the dust into the space. And that's certainly unwanted, right? Um, yep. One way about it is to set up that control cube right underneath of your scope of work for that repair. And uh, you can actually adjust the height and press it up on the seating side. So it's all nicely, well, rel- uh, relatively nicely sealed. And, and then do what you're supposed to do. And the question was, is this an effective tool, right? So right. we did that, we tested it. Uh, we actually had a scenario where there was no control queue. Uh, we started uh, to simulate whatever the case was, moving the tile and so forth, that we had a strict scenario for all of our tests just to make sure that that's not a, 
uh, confounding variable in our, in our work. Um, and then uh, we measured the counts of particles and dust in three, four places underneath that tile and um, in the vicinity of it, surrounding of it, right? And then we set up our control cube, did the same thing. And it turns out that it's very efficient and very effective because it essentially contains the dust at the source. Now I have a caveat to share with you guys. And the caveat is that the efficiency of those cubes in our research um, are dependent of the door kept shut. Mm -hmm. So if the door of that control cube is open, what's the point, right? Right. Now, another thing um, that was super interesting in our work, because we repeated our test many times, is when you open and close the door and you do it frequently, the, the efficiency goes down pretty dramatically meaning that particles can migrate in and escape from that control cube environment and go elsewhere, right? Now, a, the good thing is that we also tested the HEPA filter and well, it's probably no brainer and we expect that, but zero particles at the HEPA filter. So the filter works pretty good and pretty reliable. What's, what's really important is for the user, for the construction worker to understand that they don't want to open that, close that door quite frequently. They, if they need tools inside the control cube, let's actually take them with us and let's do the job, wait there until the, the inside space is cleaned by the HEPA filter and then leave. I and think that's a key point you just made though. They, they can't just leave right away. They've got to wait a minute and let that negative pressure build up, let it clean the air. That's a good point. Absolutely. And I want to, if I want to give you a, a, a number, because we also tested that for a control cube, the size that we did, I want to say um, it was about, I can actually check it. Uh, it was about two and, a, uh, two and a half feet by four and a half feet, the size of that control cube. Um, our tests essentially show that um, you probably want to stay inside for two minutes. Two minutes, okay. Depending on the CFM of that HEPA filter, obviously, right? Right. Um, depending on how fast the air is turned inside the cube. But yeah, well, for a typical control cube that's commercial, that's out there, uh, and assuming that you set it on high, uh, yeah, you want two, three minutes, stay there. Uh, let's not leave. Let's actually get the dust settled and, and filter out, and then you should be okay to leave. Okay. Cliff, you have a follow-up? I do. I do. Um, I, they, they, it's, it looks like a phenomenal tool. Uh, I, I've seen them before and always felt that they would make a, a lot of sense. Um, I guess what my question is, is, is there not a risk when someone comes out of it that their clothing uh, is contaminated. So is the person uh, inside the cube, you know, wearing Tyvek or, or something like that, that he could actually take off, you know, once, once the air clean, because it seems that, you know, you could kind of burp out, uh, excuse the, uh, you know, the word, uh, a bunch of contamination, you know, once it was unzipped, or perhaps maybe even wheel that person to, you mm -hmm. know, to some area, 
uh, in the hospital, um, you know, where they could um, take it off. I never realized how much particles were uh, um, generated, you know, during uh, the removal of the equipment, the doffing of it. Uh, great point, great point, Cliff. And let me add to that, that uh, here is um, a key finding from our work, that when that person opens the door without waiting, right, and then leave the cube, the, the, the dust that you observed outside of that control cube um, went up 10 times. That's a huge number. Like if it was 500, it becomes 5,000. Mm -hmm. If it was 10,000, it becomes 100,000, right? So that's risk. Although it's a point measurement and you can actually see that it quickly drops down, mm -hmm. right? But still what happens is that during that early time, exactly what you just said will happen. Um, in the control cube, in my, in, in my observation experience, there's usually not enough space for them to don on, on and off. So mm -hmm. it would be a bit, uh, at least it's not what they do. Um, however, I ran into this quite creative project manager, again, up in Prisma Health here in Greenville, South Carolina, where, um, uh, where essentially the, um, they had a, like a vacuum cleaner type thingy. Mm -hmm. They brought it with them inside and they vacuumed themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they actually stepped out. Uh, I got to tell you, in our, in our research, we did not test that scenario. I wish we did, but we didn't test that scenario. But my point being, with the proper training and creativity, there are ways for us to minimize that risk. Well, it would also seem that, you know, perhaps they could spray themselves with something. You know, it could be detergent water, just water, you know, mended water you know, that they use for asbestos or whatever, and right. it would probably help some of it anyway. Absolutely, absolutely. And a lot of times they may have a HEPA vacuum with them as well because mm -hmm. of what they're doing above. So mm -hmm. uh, they could use that as well. Um, the other question I had for you on that particular study was, did you look at using the control cube without the air filtration device being on? And if that helped at all? A lot. Yes, we did. And uh, the, again, the, 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 the finding is day and night, if, hmm. if you ask me. It's, well, if, if you recall, um, I, I said something within the lines that if you have the cube and you don't have the cube, you're looking at an order of magnitude increase. Um, so if, uh, if the, the established background, let's say is 1,000, you don't have a cube, it goes up to 100,000. Uh, but the control cube can keep it actually uh, in at least an order of magnitude lower, right? Okay. HEPA on, HEPA off doesn't give you that much of mitigation, but it easily gives you about 30 to 40%. Okay. okay. If that makes sense. So which, which is, again, a lot when it comes to risk mitigation. Sure. So, yes, absolutely. And that was a, that was a, that was a big point because another effect that HEPA filter can have is that it obviously creates a, a negative air pressurization inside your cube. Uh. Now the door is also more effective. Now migration and escape of particles is kind of going down, which is another plus. 
but it may also pull particles from that right. ceiling plenum uh, right. when you turn that machine on. So very interesting whether or not you want that machine on or not, I think could vary. It's something that I think in the future, maybe we'd look at a little more closely. Yeah, well, yeah, you're right. Maybe the, again, I wish uh, our study, our test scenarios could answer spe specifically that question. But one thing that can happen is that when you remove the time, when you generate aerosols, let's keep it sh shut down. When you're done, let's, Thank you. Or something like that. Okay. All right. Let's go to, um, I want to talk a little bit about your training of renovation workers and some training tips. So if people are doing work in a hospital, they're performing renovations, what kind of tips do you give? Can you give us for training these people that are going in and doing this type of work? Um, um, Joe, um, where do I begin? Well, let me let me share the, the biggest takeaway, my biggest takeaway from that work. And here is the idea. When I was talking, so let me talk less than 30 seconds about what we actually did. Okay. We identified the largest healthcare contractors in the nation, the top 15, and asked them to help us um, frame and understand what's going on, what's different from healthcare construction and other sorts of construction. Um, I think 10 out of 15 participated. And from each, uh, each group, we had somewhere close to like 10, 15 different project managers uh, across the nation who helped us with that. Here's my biggest takeaway. When it comes to training for project managers, for the upper level, level managerial folks, probably hospital safety managers, hospital personnel, you get good stuff out there. I mean, ASHI is a, is a great resource for that, for example. And they've got a lot of systems going on. They actually keep you up to date with the trainings and so forth. Now, in my opinion, the issue is the frontline workers who actually do the job. They don't necessarily get training. Um, they, and, and even if they get training, even if the hospital systems, because that's case by case now, right? Even if the hospital system wants to set up some training for them, um, they get bored pretty easily because they feel like, well, why do I even need to know all this? The type of training they receive is uh, so, somewhat traditional, which is uh, less entertaining, if that makes sense. So my biggest takeaway was we need to do something about subcontractors and, and general contractors, workers who actually do the job. They need to know more about this. And now we live in a world of technology. So if need be, we can use a goggle and essentially show them, well, if you, if you sand a piece of dust, well, a piece of drywall here, this is how much dust you generate, right? And they can literally see, that's what I do. I, I, I make those models, right? To show them what's going on, how these little things spread in the space. What does that negative pressure now mean? Like visually, you can visually see that with the negative pressure, particles don't go out. Right? This to me is effective training. And I wish, you know, 
uh, all of us together uh, can create that momentum and move towards that direction. That's that would be that would be super super cool. Hey, I I got a text question from the last topic real quick. Um, were your measurements done with real time particle counter? And if you want to mention what type, that's fine. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So pretty much um, pretty much every everything I have done. I'm trying to think. I want to be accurate when I say everything, but I think I am. It is real time time series particle measurement. Because I'm a true believer that those real-time values, time-dependent values matter, right? And that's sort of as opposed to some passive measurement systems like a bacterial count, bacterial load measurement systems, where you have a settle plate in a space, for instance, and it sits for the duration of your test and you get one data point in time. Oh, that's also quite, quite awesome for different purposes. What I'm most interested in is essentially um, uh, time series of data, how concentration changes with time, because only then I can, I can define new scenarios and test them. And uh, to answer this, your second question, we use, well, one of your sponsors, TSI, they have, they have great measurement tools. We use them. Um, and, and some other comp competition sy systems and teams. We have a in-house um, researcher uh, here at Clemson University who has developed a low-cost particle counter. Uh, but, um, and, and we're working together to make those uh, also available for the types of tests that I do. But at the moment, uh, it's limited what that system or what that instrument does is limited to PM 2.5. Again, okay. depending on my type of study, I want submicron particles be counted as well. So, um, so we're not there yet to use what we have in, in house, but we're doing comparisons. As Cliff, we do you have a, a follow up, Cliff? I did. I just wanted to comment on on uh, something that Isan said in dealing with uh, you know with some of the frontline workers that you know uh, you know traditional training methods you know such as you know lecture and slides and stuff like that really may not resonate with them and you know also you're going to encounter workers who English may not be their first language either and in having to do some of this type of training uh, earlier in my career, one of the things that I found in terms of the training, particularly for people whose English, uh, for, for whom English was not their first language, is I could kind of break it down into four words and I could tell it to them in their language. Uh, and the four words that I needed to know was that clean was good and that dust was bad. And that was really the concept that, you know, that they needed to know. Queen's good, dust is bad. And also to use things that they could see, visual things, you know, such as smoke or something like that, that they could actually see it because you're talking about particles and they can't visualize it. However, you know, if you can use a small smoke generator or something like that, you know, they can see it and it makes it a whole lot better, you know, with air flows and so on and so forth. So those are just a couple suggestions for you there. 
right, let's we're going to stop here. Thank our sponsors. When we come back, I want to talk about this paper performance analysis of portable HEPA filters and temporary plastic anti rooms. I think that's, you know, on the spread of surrogate coronavirus, I, I think there's a lot of good information in that one. We'll be back in two minutes with our guest, Dr. Isan Musabi. Our marquee sponsor, Instascope. More jobs done faster with the future of IAQ assessment technology. Unlimited samples, instant results, and cloud-based data at instascope.co. Our association sponsors are AIHA. Healthy workplaces, a healthier world at AIHA.org. ACGIH, advancing careers of professionals in environmental health, industrial hygiene, and safety, interested in defining their science at ACGIH.org. The Cleaning Industry Research Institute, see more deeply through science and research at CIRI Science. Org. The Indoor Air Quality Association, promoting the exchange of indoor environmental quality information through education and research at IAQA.org. The Restoration Industry Association, the granddaddy of the restoration industry, network with leaders at restorationindustry.org. The IICRC, a nonprofit Standards Development and Certifying Body for the Cleaning and Restoration Industry at IICRC.org. And Healthy Buildings America 2021 in Honolulu, Hawaii, August 10 through 12, 2021 at HB2021-America.org. IAQ Radio Industry Sponsors are AEML Laboratories, Free Shipping, Great Pricing, same-day results with no rush fee at AEMLINC.com. Particles Plus, feature-rich particle counters and air quality instrumentation. Count on us at ParticlesPlus.com. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, over 20 years manufacturing accurate, reliable IAQ instrumentation for portable short-term and continuous monitoring at Gray Wolf Sensing. TSI Inc., an industry leader in precision instrumentation for monitoring indoor air. Learn how to expand your IAQ investigations at TSI.com. And Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online magazine for industry professionals and consumers at HealthyIndoors.com. All right, we're back to the second half of our interview. We've got Dr. Hassan Musavi, and we're going to talk a little bit about a paper on the performance analysis of portable HEPA filters and temporary plastic anorooms. John, can you pull that up? Let's set this first by, I was a little thrown by the title because it, it had anti-rooms in there, and I, I was like, well, wait, I thought the anti-room was a room on the outside of a room, but it looks like you kind of built an anti-room within a room here. Is that accurate to say? Yes. By design, you're absolutely correct, Joe. So if we design an anti-room from, you know, at the design stage, um, then we want to design it to the, towards the outer uh, side of our, our room. And it's sort of on the outside of the entrance. Uh, in this case, we actually had a room and we wanted to check and see if we can create something 
that would help us better and the healthcare, uh, the, the healthcare workers better when they deal with the COVID patients, right? Sometimes you can actually stick that in a room and, and, and build it on the outside, like on, in the hallway that yes. you can see on the picture where it says door. Depending on the, the width of that hallway, sometimes it's not possible. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And sometimes it makes it super hard to do something like that. So we thought that why don't we use the space that we have inside and test that and see what happens? Because if that's proven effective, it's not too hard to, uh, to create a plastic barrier like you see in the image. And then maybe that's something we want to consider when uh, dealing with a, a COVID patient. So essentially, you took this room and divided it not quite in half. It looks like you got more like, you know, two thirds for the patient area and then another area that would kind of be the entry exit, sort of like a decontamination unit that we see on remediation projects. You've got two HEPA uh, air filtration devices, one in the patient room, one in the ante room, and you were testing to see how well that worked. Is that accurate to say? Yes, sir. And and it, uh, and if I want to um, quickly add, when we were testing, we actually released particles, oil-based particles, uh, assuming that a patient, a COVID patient, is lying down on that patient bed. And uh, we did measurements inside that isolation space, uh, within that anteroom space, outside of the room, at the door, and down the hallway. Um, to see how potentially um, those particles can, can, can uh, spread within the space. Okay. And let me ask this, as far as the exhaust of your air filtration devices, it looks like, at least in the photo, uh, you were using, you were going above, is that a suspended ceiling or were you using a return air or are you going directly to the outside? Could you explain a little for listeners how you did that? Sure. Um, no, for, the, for this experimental setting, we actually, the, the exhaust location was high, not from the ceiling, but high in the wall, but out um, of the room. So, so on the left-hand side of that testing um, section, where uh, you essentially don't see it in the drawings, there was another hallway. Uh, okay. So the, the exhaust actually went into that hallway. And that you were able to do that because this was just an experiment. It was an empty area. And even if something got past your HEPA filter, it wouldn't be a big deal. Correct. Correct. And I guess there's times when, you know, especially today with these hospitals being just challenged immensely, I wouldn't be surprised if they were exhausting into other areas right from the air filtration device, just, you know, assuming or hoping that that HEPA filter was capturing everything. But Typically, we're going to try and exhaust that to the outdoors. So can you tell listeners a little bit about And the other thing I wanted to ask is this. You want that where the HEPA-1, that part of the room, to be negatively pressurized to the HEPA-2 area, which is also negatively pressurized to the hallway. And I would imagine you had to do some adjustment to get that to work because, you know, you've got basically one area that needs to be negative to another and then that area needs to be negative to a hallway but the first area needs to be negative to the first area so it seems like you probably had to adjust the amount of cfm on the hepa filter or on the air filtration devices to get that is that 
Is that, that accurate to say? Yes, sir. That we did. That okay. we did. And uh, so, so the HEPA machines, um, they essentially had two modes, low and high, right? And so we didn't actually have a lot of wiggle room when it came to setting up that pressure. But yep. uh, say, for instance, if you wanted the isolation space to be negative with respect to anteroom and anteroom be negative with respect to door, that was achieved by high-low, if that makes sense. Sure. So you had the one in the in the isolation room on high and the one in the anteroom on low. Correct. Okay. And, and the good thing about it was that we also tested a case where HEPA-1 in that figure was off and HEPA-2 was on to see what happens if you have a negative pressure from the rest of the space, but anteroom is kind of the dump of the particles, if that makes sense. So it's yes. negative with respect to both, both spaces. And tell um, us how that came up. Oh, okay. So, um, so, so we tested, uh, we did a lot of measurements, first of all, on um, pressurization across both doors. Now, remember, we had one door that connects isolation to anti-space, anti and then we had another door, a hinge door, that will connect the anti-space to the outside. Um, the, the adjacent hallway. So we actually measured pressure at, at both, both stations. Uh, we also had um, cases where both HEPA filters were on. Uh, one was on, one was off, so forth and so on. Now, again, if I want to stay in 2000 feet level and just kind of give you the big picture finding, um, rather obviously, if you have both HEPA filters working you get a great result, right? So it's, a, it's about cleaning that space so rapidly in both spaces. So that's your best choice. In the event that you only have one HEPA filter available, which is likely, right? Yeah. Um, then definitely do not put it in the anteroom and put it in the isolation space. Okay. Putting one HEPA filter in the anteroom, although it creates a better negative pressure across that hinge door, but overall is not a good idea because it draws pathogens of, and surrogate particles from the isolation space into the anteroom and, um, and creates a higher opportunity for those uh, surrogate pathogens to leave the space. And I think it would be, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, you're, you're trying to train people to do this. And the more complexity you add by having two HEPA units and, and you know, different negative pressure differentials between these rooms, that would be difficult. But I'm wondering um, if you recall off the top of your head, what was your negative pressure in your isolation room compared to, and I, I assume you measured it both to the Hallway and to the anteroom? Um, correct. Uh, I want to say that depending on the cases, for example, in the in the on-on cases, what I call it, when both of them are were on. Yes. Um, so the negative pressure across that door was negative 12 Pascal. Okay. Uh, which is what, like five times the current standard unless, you know, well, current ASHRAE standard, let me be clear, uh, because FGI is changing that value. Um, and then um, the, the 
Other pressure was negative four. Four, Pascal. Yes. Okay, interesting. And what I, I think when we talked about this earlier, one of the things you, you found during the study was the importance of that plastic doorway. And uh, I wonder if you could talk to listeners, our audience a little bit about what you learned with respect to that plastic doorway and how important certain activities are when it comes to the doorway. Excellent question, Joe. Um, let me start uh, with the less trivial finding, which was uh, that that may be less trivial to me. That plastic barrier in itself, and forget about the HEPA filter, is very, very efficient. Which, and it actually caught me by surprise because the moment you put that, that uh, plastic barrier and you contain the, the bad stuff, the pathogens and the surrogate particles, within the isolation space only with some physical barrier and with essentially no air barrier, you still get outstanding results. Obviously, when you add the HEPA, you get much better results, okay. right? But don't, I, I wanna emphasize that the plastic barrier itself is, is, is a good idea. Now, in the absence of additional equipment, that can help us a lot. So that was the first thing I was going to say. And the second thing I was going to say um, is that during our testing, we also went ahead and created uh, dents and wears and tears and, you know, half open zipper and things like that. Less than perfect scenarios for that door. And um, the finding, which was also um, really, really good and outstanding, was that if your HEPA is on, inside your isolation room, um, those little tears and, you know, maybe a half open zipper and things like that, they won't actually hurt, hurt you so badly. Their effect, uh, the, 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 the effect is um, rather minimal. It's not too, too huge, right? You still see blips of, you know, migration of particles into the annual room. But compared to the overall scheme, it wasn't it wasn't super bad, if okay. um, you know. And we actually, as part of the part of the test, we created a um, so we turned down a piece of that plastic barrier, turned it turned it open, and placed the particle counter literally next to that opening, next to that hole, and then turned on the HEPA inside the isolation room, and you still get little particles migrating from that space, even though doing that, which was quite good. So that pressure, the, that pressurization is pretty efficient. And is, was that when both units were running or just one? Um, that was for just one unit running inside the isolation. Space. In the ISO area. Okay. Correct. And did you do the same kind of thing at the doorway between the ante room and the hallway? Uh, as to well, as to whether or not opening and closing the door on the ante room, the plastic door, did that affect how much particulate got out of the ante room and into the hallway? 
that is yes, we did that, and and the result is a negligible increase okay. at the uh, well. I call that measurement station door measurement station, which is right outside of the room in, in that corridor. A very yeah. negligible increase in that door and in that hallway stations measurement stations. Gotcha. Um, in the, in the, in the right. And um, and and Joe, if I may, I what I was going to also say one thing real quickly, uh, and that is, after doing so many tests, and in, in in my humble opinion, when we're talking about pressurization, and we're talking about filtration, although they're somewhat interconnected, but we're talking about two different things. And let me give you an example to make it clearer. Let's say that you have a HEPA unit um, in a given space, right? And then the exhaust is, is directly to the outside environment. So when that thing is on, you expect to get a negative pressure, correct? Now, yes. um, so with that scenario, if one actually reaches to the ceiling side and then drills a hole in the ceiling, you can see that that pressure across the door vanishes when you create more leakage in your uh, in in your um, envelope in your boundaries. However, the HEPA filter still works and it still cleans the inside environment. That's a good point. That's a very good there point. Are two different yeah. things. We don't want to mix them up. Of again, they're related, but fundamentally, do two different things. In my opinion, pressurization is important, but we don't want to get carried away by the magnitude, like 30 pascals or 20 pascals or those big numbers. First of all, achieving them is extremely hard because spaces can be leaky. And, and then they're not going to add a lot of value over you know, some, some given point. What's very important at the same time is to keep the space clean. And that's what the filtration system does rather independently from creating or maintaining that negative pressure, if I make sense. Interesting point. Yes, very good. Cliff? Yeah, I did. Uh, doctor, something I, I, I thought about when you talked about putting up the plastic barrier and that it was surprisingly effective and I'm wondering whether or not you notice that sometimes when you put up plastic, you know, what happens is it maintains the static attraction and it, attra it actually attracts and holds dust. And I was wondering whether that was something that you had measured or something that you had noticed what, in your no, study. What a great point, Cliff. No, we did not make clear measurements on that. Unfortunately not. But that's a, that's a very good point. I, I want to test that at some point. Hopefully, again, you know, when the, if the time and money are right, um, that is something I definitely want to look at. But well, one thing you could do easy is if you took a dryer sheet from, um, you know, clothes dryer, those dryer sheets, uh, they're positively charged and uh, they reduce static. So you could potentially, you know, have one piece that was, you know, you wiped the, the static off of and, you could allow other pieces to have the static and see if there was a measurable difference. Right, right. And that is doable. That is something that we can 
you know, experimentally set up. Mm -hmm. Thank you for for that suggestion. You're welcome. You're very welcome. Let me, let me get one more question in here before we go to what we call a roundup. I want to see if we can bring in the restoration industry global watchdog. But before we do, you also have looked at how the movement of humans and the opening and closing of doors affects the particular control and pressurization. I just wanted to give you an opportunity. We won't be able to go into great detail on the work you did, but what are the overall findings of your work with respect to human movement and opening and closing of doors? And I think one you're not done with quite yet, so uh, understood. Uh, let me begin with the door opening, Joe. Um, door opening can terminate negative pressures up to eight Pascal. And I say easily. Uh, door openings can reverse pressurization up to three Pascal. Meaning, especially, especially depending on the type of, depending on whether the door opens towards that main stream of air, towards the negative space or against it, right? Uh, and door opening can actually reverse negative pressures for the time of opening, correct? So, so let's say that a typical opening is like, what, five, six seconds or so. For someone to open the door, step out, and then close the door behind them or something like that. With, with that given time, door opening can even reverse pressurization. Hmm. And almost in any every test that you've done, we see spikes of measurements associated with door openings. That's that's a that's definitely a big, big concern that one can have. And now anti-rooms can come to rescue, especially if you have them by design. Right. Now, about human movement, what we did, and I'll, be, I'll try to be very quick about it, is that I went to the University of California at Berkeley for um, uh, a project funded by the, by the National Science Foundation. Mm -hmm. And um, what they did out there, and this wasn't a part of, of my project. I was just uh, um, fortunate. Um, that the timing worked perfectly for me, but they were actually in-house building what we call a 3D air velocity, velocity measure, measurements device. And uh, you guys um, probably know that what we have right now that's commercially available out there, they're air anemometers. They measure speed of air, not velocity. And the difference is in the direction, right? So when you measure a speed, you don't know which direction that speed is. You measure magnitude of velocity. But the device that they created, that they came up with, it has not been commercialized just yet, is that uh, that device helps you measure the velocity of air and the components, like the X component, the Y component, the Z component, and all that kind of good stuff. And again, if I want to give you one takeaway about that paper, Human movement, although when we walk, we walk in a um, XY direction, right? We walk in a horizontal pattern. We don't jump up, uh, jump up and down. But the, the, the Z component of airspeed, uh, which is responsible for resuspension of particles, is huge. It's, it's, it's super big. It surprised me. It's, so you're talking, so if 
if the x component meaning that the component that is along your motion uh, if that is one meters per second that can create up to 0 0.3 0 0.5 meters per second of upward velocity in the air interesting which was a lot and you didn't expect to see that, I'll bet. They, they didn't expect to see that. No, no. And, well, the beauty of that device, again, was that it, it allows us to measure, do measurements in the Z direction. So we could literally see that, oh, there is a, there's a spike in the Z direction. When a person walks like this, air can go up and down. Never would have thought about that. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Let's go to our roundup. Oh, by the way, I wanted to mention one more thing on the door opening and closing. Again, it goes back to the earlier discussion on training of people doing this type of work. It's something I've always focused on real heavy in our mold and asbestos training and so on. When you go in and out of that containment, how important it is for them to put those flaps back the right way and to do it quickly. And you've just confirmed that with your work. And I appreciate that. Let's go to the roundup, John. Uh, let's go to the, the Restoration Industries Global Watchdog. Pete, I know you uh, have a couple quick comments here. We're running a little low on time, but I wanted to make sure I got you a chance to get in here. Yeah. Well, it was a real interesting um, interview, and I noticed that uh, Hassan he probably has that, that tiger paw on his shirt there. Yeah, you know, sure. uh, <laughs> I, I, I imagine if our Buckeye friend John Donnie happened to call in, of course, he's been so busy with the Siri business, he probably would have something to say about that. Hey, Hassan, it's kind of interesting that you uh, you uh, did, uh, you know, did some of your college work at the University of Nebraska. I, uh, of course, they're in the Big Ten now, but I, when I was a young kid, I, don't, I have no idea why this is. I used to like the Cornhuskers when they were part of the Big Eight back in the day. It's the only conference that ever had the uh, – the, the top three teams at the end of the season mm -hmm. finished were all from the same conference. It was Nebraska, Oklahoma, and Colorado one year, a little bit of trivia. But I, I, I'll tell you, I went, I went on a, uh, uh, a tour of uh, when I went up to uh, – been up to Alaska a few times over the years. But the interesting tour, you take these tours of the Denali Park, and you go on these school buses. And I happened – the one I went up with a friend of mine, one of the times I'm on there – uh, you know, it's in August, just before the football season opens, and I happen to be on a school bus. There's 45 people on the bus. 38 of them are from Omaha, and they're all crazy Nebraska fans back in the heyday. And they were really just unbelievably out of control. We had to be in this bus with them for like eight hours. And at one point, about four hours in, the bus driver couldn't take it anymore. And uh, he, he comes up with this little joke, and he cracks. He says, you know, you guys kind of were almost worse than those Texas Longhorns we had on here last week. He goes, the way I handled with them is he said, you know, you guys from Texas, if you don't stop this, he says, I'm going to tell you, he says, uh, if Alaska split their state in half, Texas would be the third largest state in the U.S. And he said, that, that kind of shut them up, you know. Everything may be big in Texas, but not compared to Alaska. You know, um, I, I will tell you that something I like to comment on. I, I've, uh, you know, as a lot of the viewers of the show and certainly Cliff know, we're very interested in a lot of the academic research and a lot of the work with the universities. The restoration in particularly has a very strong connection to, to Purdue and their construction management program. And I know that Clemson has a similar one. There's a lot of schools in the Southeast that are like that. In Mississippi State, they apply for research you know, with the government and things of that nature. 
And one that Cliff and myself were involved with uh, several years ago with some research that was done in Tuskegee who got the contract. But in 2008, so here's here's the Clemson connection. We, uh, Cliff and myself and a number of uh, kind of an industry delegation from RAA and the IICRC, we went to a very special event hosted by Savannah, uh, Savannah Labs, you know, national, one of the national labs, uh, Savannah River National Lab, which happened to be in South Carolina too. And um, they hosted an event in Charleston. A uh, couple of the keynote speakers were were the uh, uh, the mayors of- Mayor, uh, mayor Riley. Yeah, Mayor O'Reilly, long-term mayor of Charleston, and then the guy from the Gulf Shores. And they talked about resilience and they talked about you know, their experiences coming through Katrina and a lot of these type of floods and how to, to make the cities and communities resilient through research, through working with academia, through government contracting and partnering with industry, how important it was. We had the opportunity to be there, report back to our associations, you know, and kind of trying to build on that over the years. And co coincidentally, I don't know, it's probably done now, but they were doing the restoration of the Hundley submarine. And we had a little tour with the whole group and we, you know, the association hosted a little hors d'oeuvres. We got a little PR out of it. But I, um, Clemson was very prominent in a lot of that work. And I was very familiar with a lot of the wind studies, the air stuff you're talking about and all these things going through there in the building science. So it was interesting that uh, Joe had you on the show. I talked to him yesterday, made a point of calling in today because I got a lot of calls and, and it's uh, very interesting. And I, uh, I think that, you know, the work that Joe's done for years down there in, in uh, going down to Greenville and doing all that was really fantastic. So you're you're kind of like a part of the new generation of young guys who are involved in this stuff. Yes, and uh, I think it's really great. You know, when Joe, when the Healthy Building Summits kind of get back online again, maybe 2022, it'd be interesting to have a have young Hassan be on there and kind of weigh in with his perspective as part of this research to practice and all that. But, uh, you know, I want to give a little bit of history. Uh, it just was interesting. It's a small world and, you know, and, the, the more the things change, the more they kind of remain the same. We kind of find these roots. But, you know, to pose a question to you, Son, anything you can share with us in the audience, maybe Cliff could put in a blog that's coming out of Clemson that is relevant to building resiliency from the damage restoration component, you know, that uh, you may be involved with the university and involved with any pointers, anything, any comment you got on that, you know, since I'm the restoration watchdog, I figure I should direct it question along those lines yeah. and uh anyway just want to thank you and uh very interesting i'm looking forward to cliff's blog he's always fantastic as usual and radio joe there there you go that that was a pete five <laughs> wow that was good pete very good Son, any follow-up to that um um thank you so much um that and, and and uh thank you for sharing that history it was quite interesting and you know it's like you said world is a small place it's just um i know that so well let me give you a bit of technicality i am technically part of a program or a department called construction science and management and then we have a department at clemson civil engineering and i know for a fact that they do a lot of work along the lines that you just indicated on the resiliency on um, actually preparedness on post-catastrophe uh, uh, and things like that. What I am interested in, uh, and I have been trying to uh, put that work together, I guess I'm always an uh, optimistic person, so I have reasons to be optimistic about that as well, um, is essentially 
if we can define uh, COVID as a disaster, which is um, not flood, not hurricane, uh, but it's, it's again, is a disaster. And our preparedness for that disaster entails a lot of different perspectives and comments, right? I would love to work on that. I have started leading a team, putting all that effort together at Clemson to define a research thread within those lines. And the idea here is to essentially look at air quality and then, and then claim that potentially that can lead to a disaster that needs or, or begs a resiliency, both in the societal level and in the human environment level and in the built environment level, right? So, yeah. so this, is, this is the idea that we've been working together. Like I said, I'm, um, I have put a team together here, which is a well-rounded team. We have psychologists on board, we have optimization people on board, building scientists on board, um, computer scientists on board, because now you, you get to use a lot of the data that's out there uh, to study something like that. Um, and to me, resilience within those lines is huge. Um, for instance, for Clemson University and Purdue as well, because I know actually they did a what, really a fine job along those lines. Uh, and in the COVID area, era, um, essentially resiliency could mean how do we get ready to reopen? How do we get ready to, to answer a lot of questions that are new, that just coming out of the <coughs> How can we as a society, as a campus, as a college town indeed, right? Uh, be right. able to look at this together. I know Purdue did a lot of great things about that. Clemson also, Joe and I, when, when you're talking offline, we also, I, I also mentioned that we did a lot of things related to that here at Clemson, um, but it ought to be holistic, it ought to be systematic, and that's what research means to me, and I'm trying to do that. Hopefully, again, keep my fingers crossed. You always need money to do research. Um, so we've, we've put together proposals for the feds, Hopefully they find it interesting enough to give us money and we take it from there. But that's definitely 100% something on my personal agenda. That's something I want to do. I want to pursue. Yeah. Hey, Joe, look, yes, let, I, let, I got something really important now that, that Isan's comments triggered. And Cliff, I think it would be good for you to put this in the blog. So, Isan, I'm glad that you kind of mentioned Purdue and know a little bit about them. We've got long uh, history with Purdue. Randy Rapp there, who's the professor, he just was named the uh, named professorship uh, for the, uh, the reconstruction and demolition uh, concentration under the, the BCM, the building construction management. Hmm. Now, here's why this is important in the context of the comments that you just made. Um, he, they, they have, through Purdue and through our industry, a national connection with a fellow named Sam Burrowdy, who uh, uh, is from the university, well, University of South Australia. There, there they call it the uh, Built Environment School, which is equivalent to construction management. He was there for many years. He moved just across the way to uh, the University of Adelaide. Same kind of work, same kind of deal. He's had visiting professorships here a handful of times. And after post-COVID, I think he's going to come back. And him and Randy have also done some published research in our industry on some topics related to this. Now, 
one of the things that I think would be good for you to do is uh, Cliff and myself and a couple other industry bigwigs, Rusty Amaranti with Belfort, he's been interviewed on the show. Um, we were able to do a special panel presentation in 2000 and uh, I guess 14 it was that Purdue hosted a global infrastructure conference. There was the people there from, uh, I don't know, eight, nine countries, all the countries that got affected by the, the, the tsunamis and all these kind of disasters. Mm-hmm. And the people that were there in the audience were essentially ones who worked for the governments, who advised the governments on the, you know, global disaster management. And, uh, and there's a document that we got published, was peer reviewed, and it was post published, which is not this, the norm where you get a peer reviewed paper part of the proceedings. They yeah. published a panel presentation, an industry panel. It's about 20 pages. It's on Purdue EPUBs. But quite frankly, if you go to the IEQA website, you search Randy Rapp, that whole department interview that uh, Cliff, Joe, myself, we did on site with them. Uh, I think there's an access to download the document, which may be interesting to you and your colleagues. And there's a lot of information there that would be very helpful. And I could see something in the future, Joe, coming together where all these things are kind of collide. Because this is what IQA Radio does, man. We build these bridges for the greater good of all these industries that we connect. Because as a good young friend of ours up and coming said, Cliff and Joe, you guys are the OGs when it comes to this. Because before anyone even knew what a podcast was through talk show, you all had the insights to do that. And even after all these days of doing a great job and some of the people that call in every week on on our call log right now are, you know, just all leaders in their industries. And it's really good to see all that happen. So anyway, I wanted to weigh in, you know, if if I didn't say some of the stuff he did, I was done. But it's like (laughs) you, Joe, once in a while you have an audible. And you gotta have the audible, otherwise, what's the point of being a watchdog? I have no problem with audibles. Thank you, Pete. I want to say thanks to this week's guest, Hassan Musavi, Doctor Musavi. Thank you. That was wonderful. Um, we're going to post the link to your Google Scholar page too. There was another paper on there we didn't get to. Uh, a few more. And uh, I want to also make sure I thank Todd Usher, a mutual friend who got me in touch with you, and uh, who's also down at Clemson, but also a builder in the. Uh, Greenville, South Carolina area. Thanks for joining us. We really appreciate having you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your show. It, it, it really was. I had I had a fun time, and I appreciate it. And I thank you for it. You're welcome, my friend. All right, this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Isan Musavi. I want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. John, you got to have faith at the controls. The Restoration Industries Global Watchdog, Pete Consigli. Most importantly, our growing group of loyal listeners and sponsors. Next Friday, we will be back. We've got uh, Dr. Mark Hernandez and John Lovett from Instascope. We're going to talk a lot about some of the work they're doing in schools and other areas. So come back next Friday for the next episode of IAQ Radio Plus. For IAQ Radio, I'm Spike Reed saying thanks for listening.